0: Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. If you're using your Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 810. We're going to be back in our Matthew study as a result of not being in it last week. I think we were in it the week before, but then a week or two before that we were not. But we're back in our Matthew study this morning, back in Matthew chapter 5. And as we've been going through Matthew 5, one of the biggest things that we've seen is that Jesus is teaching us that He is the fulfillment of the law. That every line and every dot of the Old Testament law had been fulfilled in Jesus. So as the fulfillment of the law, He is teaching us The proper interpretation of it. And so as Jesus continues through the chapter of Matthew 5, he brings up six different laws and then he shows us what the proper perspective we should have on the law should be. So six times he says, you have heard it said, and then he states the law, and then he gives the proper interpretation of that law. So he's not dismantling these laws here. He's not doing away with them. He's simply showing us how we ought to view them. Remember, Jesus is the rabbi. He's he's come to this spot. He says in the beginning of the chapter, or the end of 4, that he has sat down. He is sitting down. He's taken the position of rabbi. And all of these people are around him listening to what Jesus has to say. But one thing that we've been noting as we've been going through Matthew is that this isn't going to be a simple person. This isn't going to be simply a teacher. This is going to be a king. So Jesus is not only the teacher, but he is also the king. So as the teacher king, he is able to both teach the truth that he has to give to the people, but he also has the power to back up what he is saying to them. So he goes to them and he says, you, you've understood these laws incorrectly. You guys have it wrong. And by my own authority, I am declaring to you what the proper view of them should be. So a couple of examples. When it came to adultery, no, of course, we're still not supposed to commit adultery, just like Moses had said in the Old Testament. But that isn't all. You're not to commit adultery with your body, but you're still, you're also not to commit adultery in your heart. You're not to look upon somebody with lust. Another example he gave was murder. We're, we're of course still not to murder, as the Old Testament has said, but that isn't all. We're also not to hate somebody. We're, we're not to harbor anger towards somebody in our hearts. And if we do, we have killed them with our hearts. So Jesus is upping the stakes when it comes to the Old Testament law. He's upping the stakes here for people who are going to be a part of his kingdom. And he continues to up the stakes in this morning's passage by bringing up a couple more examples from the Old Testament in order to show us how we should view them. And let's see what they are by looking at Matthew 5, verses 33 to 42. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So you remember back in the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus told us who we are as people of His kingdom. That we were going to be blessed as His disciples. That we were in a privileged position of blessing as a result of all that He has done for us. That we are blessed by God as being part of His kingdom. And not only are we blessed, but Jesus goes on to tell us that we're to be salt and light. So as we continue through these laws that Jesus is discussing, it's important to remember what Jesus has already told us that we are. We're blessed. We're blessed as people of his kingdom. We're, salt and, uh, we're, we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world. And so as we move into today's passage, it's important to remember what he has already told us in the beginning of the chapter because he's showing us here, at least in part, what that looks like. What it looks like to be a blessed disciple. What it looks like to be salt and light in the world. How a disciple of Jesus interacts with others. And he does this by, again, driving at the heart of these laws that he is bringing up. Look at verse 33 again. This is the law that he says. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So that's the Old Testament law that he's bringing up. But look how he interprets that law in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus' whole point here is to get past all the mumbo-jumbo that the people were using in these days and to, to, to switch it with a simple yes or no. So get rid of all the big lofty language about swearing on the temple and swearing on heaven and earth and cut to the heart of it and just say yes or no. So that's Jesus' point here. What the people were doing in Jesus' day is, as the text says, they were swearing by different things. So some of them would say, I swear by the temple that I will do this for you. But then when it came to do what they said they were going to do, they would back out and say, oh, but I didn't swear by God who dwells in the temple. So they were being tricky. They would would say something that sounded really spiritual. I swear by the temple that I'll do such and such. But then they wouldn't do it because they didn't factor God's name into their oath. So they thought that it was okay to break an oath as long as they didn't evoke God's name in that oath. And we do this kind of thing all the time. Sometimes you hear people, even Christians, say something like, I swear on my mother's grave that I will do whatever for you, but it shouldn't have to be that way. It should should just be a simple yes or a simple no. You shouldn't have to swear on your mother's grave in order to assure somebody that you're going to come through on what you say that you're going to do as kids. As kids. I remember doing this kind of thing all the time. That if you made a promise to somebody, or, or if somebody made a promise to you, what would you do? You would immediately look at their hands, right? And you'd look at their feet. You'd look at their shoelaces and see if anything was crossed. And if something was crossed, then you knew that you couldn't trust them. Because for whatever reason, we thought it was okay to lie as long as our fingers were crossed. And that's how the people were treating this law. If they left God's name out of their oath, it was like crossing their fingers. They thought it was okay to break their oath. So long as God's name wasn't inside of that. Oh, so again, they would say something like, I swear by Jerusalem or I swear by heaven and earth. And then they would completely disregard what they swore to do because they didn't attach God's name to it. But what Jesus does is point out the fact that whatever you swear by anyway is somehow related to God. So to swear by the temple or to swear by heaven was essentially the same as using God's name anyway. One commentator said this, Jesus insists that whatever a man swears by is related to God in some way. And therefore, every oath is implicitly in God's name. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and even the hairs of your head are all under God's sway and ownership. So Jesus says, don't... Don't swear by these things. Don't swear by heaven. This is God's throne. This is where God sits. This is where the glory and the beauty of God shine from. Heaven isn't some kind of trifling matter. Heaven isn't what um, our culture usually thinks of what the world is. It's not some fluffy, everybody sitting on a cloud, stroking their harp. That is not what heaven is. It is nothing cheap. This is God's throne. This is where he resides. This is where the judge of the universe sits. It's a holy place. It's a perfect place. It's a place untouched by sin. So we are not to swear by it. This is God's throne. It also says that we're not supposed to swear by the earth because earth is God's. Footstool. So if heaven is God's throne, his feet are resting here on earth. But he also says not to swear by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. This is the city of the great God-man, Jesus. So these places, heaven, earth, and Jerusalem are all attached to God anyway. So swearing by them is as good as putting God's name in the oath. But look what he says in verse 36. I, I love this. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So this might sound strange, but what they would do in these days is that they would actually swear by their head. So I swear by my head that I will be at your house this afternoon. But Jesus shows how ridiculous it is because we can't even control the color of our hair, let alone have the power to back up an oath. We don't have the power or capability from keeping our hair from turning gray or to keep it in our heads. Well, we have this illusion that we are so powerful that we can just say something and we can make it happen. And we have the ability to do whatever we want. But the settled reality is that we can't. And we, we can't. We, we, can't even ma- we can only mask the fact that our hair is turning gray. We can't actually stop it from doing so. Otherwise, I would stop it because it's starting. But Jesus' bottom line when it comes to oaths is this. Don't make oaths in lofty language and swear on the temple or heaven or by your head or anything like that. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus doesn't want his people, the people of his kingdom, sounding like slick, slick car salesmen. You ever talk to a car salesman? Those guys are really slick. They tell you what you want to hear. They're, they promise you all the bells and whistles. They will tell you anything that you want to hear in order to get your signature on that piece of paper and buy the car. They will tell you anything. But God's people are not to be this way. We're not to make lofty and false promises. Our yes and no should be firm. We aren't to be known for backing, going back on our word. We aren't to be known for being tricky. We're to be known for simple yeses and noes. I mean, imagine is that as people of God's kingdom, where we had to actually say something like, I swear by the church building that I will be at church on Sunday. That's ridiculous. It should just be simple yes or no. That that I will be there. I will do this for you. I can be counted on for you. It would be ridiculous to have to make oaths and promises and all that kind of stuff to one another as God's people, especially the only reason to make a promise or just have to swear something is because you can't genuinely be trusted. But Christians are to be marked by the kind of, of, of trustworthy word and thought and actions. So, are you known for meaning what you say? Or are you elusive or tricky with your words? Or are, are you kind of like jello where nobody can really nail you to the wall, just kind of worming out of everything? You can't be nailed down. Our words are so important. Because words do define us. They, they do show who we really are. And that is where Jesus is diving with all of this. That the words we use reveal what is going on in our hearts. The fact that you're willing to break an oath reveals something about your heart. You see this kind of thing on TV all the time nowadays. Where, of course, everybody's got a camera now because everybody's got... A smartphone, so everybody's walking around with their camera 24-7. And so you get this high-profile person, right? And they're caught on camera saying or doing something that they shouldn't have done. And then they come out a couple days later and they say how they acted and what they said when they were caught on camera wasn't really them. This happened a few weeks ago with an ESPN reporter, you might have seen it on the news, who went on an absolute tirade against a parking lot attendant, using all kinds of coarse language, bragging on herself for being in the news, and even telling this parking lot attendant that she should go lose some weight. All because she was upset about something that the parking lot attendant had told her. But the, report, the, the reporter, the ESPN reporter, was caught on video saying these things. So, of course, she had to come out in order to keep her job. She had to come out and apologize. And she basically said that the way she was acting and what she was saying in that moment wasn't really her. But it was her. Because out of the abundance of her heart in that moment, she spoke. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That your words and what you say reflect what is going on in your heart being an untrustworthy person reveals something about you being tricky in the way you frame your promises shows something about your heart so the words of the christian the application here is very simple that your yes should be yes and your no should be no anything more from the, more than this comes from evil so that's the first part of our passage this morning. But the second thing we see is how or if we should retaliate when somebody does something against us. Look at verse 38 again. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this law is one that actually a lot of people have heard of. An eye for an eye, right? A tooth for a tooth. And this law was given to the people of Israel. It was given to their judicial system. It wasn't necessarily given to them personally to act upon. It was given to their judicial system in order to let the punishment fit the crime. That's basically the point of the law, an eye for an eye. It shouldn't be an eye for a body. It's an eye for an eye. There should be equal punishment for the crime. And I think that this is something that all of us would want. We we certainly want the punishment to fit the crime. The punishment shouldn't exceed it or to be worse than the crime deserves. But there was a problem going on in Jesus's day when it came to this law. What the Jews were doing is they were taking this law and and the punishment into their own hands. So they thought that they had the right to punish somebody who did something to them. So they wouldn't leave the matter up to the judicial system. They would take it upon themselves to retaliate if somebody did something against them. And Jesus is saying here, absolutely not. Retaliation is not up to you. Vengeance is not ours. We are not to repay evil for evil. We are not to... To, to go on a, a streak of revenge on somebody or to get back at somebody. When somebody does us wrong, we're simply to repay evil for, or excuse me, no, opposite, is to repay the good for the evil. And what greater example do we have than Jesus Christ himself, who has repaid our evil with his good. We treated him with disdain Our sin, your sin, my sin was put on him on the cross and he took that evil upon himself and he bore it and he bore the wrath of God on himself, on our behalf. And in turn, he dispensed to us his righteousness and we're to follow that example. Jesus practiced what he preached to the point of death. He could have retaliated when they were whipping him, when they were slapping him, when they were spitting on his face, he could, he could have retaliated. He could have called the angels to come down and wipe everybody out, but he didn't. In his choice not to retaliate against us and giving us the punishment we deserved, he took it on our behalf. But as Jesus is teaching this part of his sermon, he gives four illustrations of retaliation. And the first one is how you retaliate when somebody slaps you on the cheek. That's kind of a, a famous cultural verse, right? Well, turn the other cheek. And that's what Jesus says to do here. But does anybody enjoy being slapped on the face? Anybody? Nobody enjoys being slapped on the face. And I think that's because getting slapped in the face implies more than simply getting slapped. There's usually disrespect behind a slap. Getting slapped in the face is, is, is an insult, and it hurts our pride a little more than it hurts our face. But Jesus doesn't even mention a normal slap in the face, but a, but a slap on the right cheek. So, so if most people are right-handed, in order to slap somebody on the right side of their face, you have to backhand them across the face, which is about the only thing worse than being normally slapped in the face. So Jesus says that if somebody backhands you across the face, that you are to turn your other cheek to them. Your retaliation isn't to slap them back. Your retaliation is in simply turning the other cheek. But again, what there was going on with this, the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth thing, these people, if they had gotten slapped in the face, they would have turned around and broken your cheekbone. They would have gone the, the extra mile. They would have gone further with the punishment, the punishment wouldn't have fit the crime. They wouldn't have simply slapped back. They would have had gone further. I can remember this as a kid. Whenever you get in a little tussle with another kid, you see this on the playground, where two kids are having a great time, and then all of a sudden one just kind of does that. Then the other guy pushes. Then pretty soon you're in a full out brawl, punching each other, kicking, and pulling hair out. And that's what Jesus is getting that, that it gets worse and worse, that it just keeps tumbling, that it's a whole lot better to nip it in the bud way early and to not even retaliate, to not respond back to somebody when they do something like that. So Jesus says, no, you turn the other cheek. People of my kingdom are not going to be known for sinful retaliation. The second illustration he gives is how to respond when somebody takes our shirt. Look at what he says in verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. So suddenly Jesus brings up this idea of being sued. And he basically says that if somebody is suing you over your tunic, which a tunic was basically the inner garment that would have been against their skin. If somebody is suing you over your tunic, then to not even deal with that situation at all. Just say, you know what? Not even deal with it. Take the tunic and you know what? Here's my cloak as well. Here's my jacket as well. Because the cost of going to court and dealing with the whole matter would have been more time consuming, it would have been more costly than it would have been worth. So just simply give it up. So Jesus doesn't want us to be involved in trifling matters like this. It's better to simply have the humility to give up a few items of clothing than to hold on to your pride and go to court over something so petty. And the third example he gives is what to do when you're asked to walk a mile. And this needs a little bit more of a historical uh, clarification, because in these days, you remember that the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans, and so the Roman soldiers that would have been in the land could actually go up to a Jewish person and tell them to walk a mile with them, holding supplies, holding whatever they wanted them to hold, and the Jews hated the Romans. So if you're walking down the road and you walked by a couple Roman soldiers, they actually had the power to say, hey, you're coming with me. You're going to walk a mile with me. And so Jesus says, you walk two miles with them. You don't do the bare minimum when it comes to walking with a Roman soldier. You're actually going to need to double it and go twice the way with it. So you can imagine, you're you're just went to the market real quick and you're on the way home and you're just going to feed your family dinner that night and then a Roman says up oh, you're going to help me walk and you have to go and walk with them with people you hate anyway but Jesus says that if a Roman asks this of you to do the double amount of walking required and to go two miles with him instead of one and this is how God's people are to deal with this kind of inconvenience but the fourth illustration that he closes with is that if somebody begs from you or if somebody asks to borrow money from you, to not refuse them. And this is tough. Because Jesus starting to meddle with our money. We, we like our money. We like the security that our money gives us. But the way that Jesus talks about money here indicates that if we have the ability or the opportunity, that we should be a whole lot more free with it than we generally are. Turn over to Romans 12 quick. I think the Apostle Paul sums up well Jesus' thoughts here. And even brings out a few of the things that Jesus mentions here in Matthew 5. Um, But Romans 12. And we'll start in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible... So Paul and Jesus eh, were right on with each other. Don't retaliate to somebody with evil. But instead, if you get slapped on the cheek or insulted in some way, respond in grace. Respond with good. Don't seek vengeance. Don't avenge yourself. If somebody takes you to court over something silly like a tunic, respond in grace. If somebody inconveniences you and makes you walk a mile carrying things, respond in grace. If somebody begs from you or wants to borrow from you, respond in grace. All of this, both in our words and the way we want to retaliate, goes against the grain of the way we naturally feel. We don't naturally respond in grace because grace is not natural to us. Sin is natural to us. Our natural tendency is to not want to come through on our word when it becomes inconvenient for us to do so. Our natural tendency is to retaliate and to hit somebody back if they hit us or to hold on to our pride over petty things or to not want to give money to a beggar or somebody who wants to borrow from us. But as people of God's kingdom, people who have the spirit of God, we are to obey the words of Christ here. As blessed disciples of Jesus, as those who are called to be salt and light in the world, we are to act and respond in situations like this with the Holy Spirit-enabled grace that becomes the people of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, these are not natural inclinations that we have, which is why you have to teach this to us. And Lord, we pray that you will continue to grow us in these areas that we are weak in. Lord, I pray that you will help us to trust you, that as the judge of the universe, you will bring all things out to their proper and desired ends. Lord, I pray that you will guide our church in these matters. Lord, we pray that you will be honored as we move forward together as a church and loving one another and caring for one another. Lord, I pray that our yes will be able to be yes. I pray that retaliation, sinful retaliation will not be a problem here. We pray that you will help us to, as much as is within us, to live peaceably with one another and love and care. Lord, I pray that you will work great things as a result of your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.